Blog Talk Radio. Mr. Mark Rattledge. We have a wonderful show tonight on this year, Long Road to Ruin, brought to you by the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about Shaft. <clears throat> yeah, Shaft. There's no less cooler way to say that than by choking over it as you're coughing. Shaft. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, we're going to be looking at all three movies tonight. It's the it's the trilogy that launched the black exploitation genre, a genre I am in love with. Ooh, doggy, do I love me some black exploitation? So we'll talk about all that tonight. And I, of course, am not alone. My co-host is here with me. How do you do, Mr. Sean? Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Comer. You're not, and you heard it here first. Mark Rodelich chokes on Shaft. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, choked all over that chat. Speaking of choking on shafts, folks, you last heard him here on the Rattling Broadcasting Network uh, as we pay tribute to the one and only David Bowie. You can hear him every other week or so on the CasualHeroes.com, Casual Heroes podcast, as he brings in the noise, brings in the funk from all the years of wrestling, every last one of them. He is the punchy pugilist himself, Mr. Pat Mullen. How do you do, sir? I'm not sure if I should be offended because I don't know if the choking on Shaft joke was directed at me or Bowie. <laughs> no, I was. No, I was. However you like. I was. I would. I wouldn't dare direct a joke at Bowie unless it was talking about his copious package in Labyrinth. But no, that was more a shot at Mark than anything else. No, no, no. I meant the shot. The shot Mark took following up. Oh, 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 Mark's, oh, Mark's sad attempt to recycle my joke. Yes. Yes. You know, I, uh, I'm like Superman. I catch the bullet and I throw it back at you. See? Speaking of catching bullets. Or go shopping in the clearance bin for, or go shopping in the clearance bin for refurbs. (laughs) All right. Uh, Speaking of sad uh, uh, transitions, let's get into this tonight. No wasting time. So, it's Black History Month, and I thought, you know, what what says Black History to me? What what what's special in the world of movies and black folks that we could talk about? And I thought, what about the one and only Shaft, a movie that launched an entire genre uh, that is now dead, by the way, <laughs> dead and gone, uh, but was once upon a time a thriving genre of film, uh, especially in the B B market. Um, so. 
I'll go to you, Pat, uh, since you were our guest on the show. You beat down the doors to want to talk about this. What about it? What's what's so special about Shaft to you? Well, you know, there there are two important trends to look at with Shaft and its impact on cinema. One is that um, black strong black male leads had really been limited to this point in time, uh, especially in a gritty setting. Um, you'd seen things like the the work of Sidney Poitier in movies like In the Heat of the Night and uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where he was allowed to shine. But it was still, for the most part, a very conservative, reserved, uh, strong black character. Shaft was able to take a black character that was outspoken with an attitude, that played by his own set of rules and wasn't subservient to anybody and really allowed that to come to the forefront um, not for the first time, but it, at the most prominent point, uh, because this was shortly uh, preceded by Sweet Sweet Back's badass song, which I'm sure you guys have heard of if you haven't seen, uh, the Mario Van Peebles film. It's a great movie and an even better yeah. title. Yeah, um, which is really what people point to as the launch of the black exploitation boom. In chronological order, but in reality, it was Shaft that really captured the public and legitimized the genre to a certain point. Uh, also, to a small extent, Ossie Davis's starring vehicle Cotton Comes to Harlem, which came out the year prior. But uh, again, Shaft introduced the type of central hero figure to a movie that had only been portrayed by white men. And this was a big step in, in the direction of positive uh, portrayals of diverse characters. And it was an, adap- an adaptation of a novel that had been written by, Walt T- by Ernest Tidyman. And Tidyman had significant input on the screenplay as well. And it was a low-budget movie. There wasn't a big expectation that this was going to blow up. The, the budget for this movie was half a million dollars, which even by the standard of the 70s is not much. MGM was the distributor of the movie, and I don't think they really thought that this was going to blow up the way it did. But you took so many things that were relevant at the time with the rise of civil rights, with the grittiness of the New York streets, and you took things that had kind of gone downhill, which to me most importantly in this film is the noir genre of films that had been so popular in the 40s and 50s and had just fallen by the wayside with the rise of of more straight action vehicles and films like Bullet and The French Connection, where there were detective noir elements, but it was superseded by the action in place. This brought it back to that gritty street-level detective story and for the first time again successfully did it with a lead who wasn't a white man. Uh, and just so you know how big it blew up, on, on a half a million dollar budget, the thing made $13 million at the box office. This was an unmitigated hit. It, and again, it is. we can talk about Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song being the chronological beginning of the black exploitation explosion, but it was the success of Shaft that really launched that genre and led to films like Coffee, like... Uh, uh, you know, everything basically that Fred Williamson started in the 70s, all of Pam Greer's Dol- vehicles, that, the, 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 Dolo the Dolomite trilogy. trilogy. Right. Uh, the rise of a guy like Jim Kelly through martial arts films. Uh, this this was really the starting point. Um, Ron O'Neill and Superfly, this is really where it all began. And without this movie, we lose out on a lot of classic cinema and a lot of opportunities afforded to a very talented group of actors, writers, directors that hadn't gotten the spotlight before. 
Yep, and that's why I wanted to talk about it tonight. Sean, what uh, what notes do you have on this movie tonight, if any? Well, folks, if you really have a, a serious aversion to lengthy Sean Comer rants, the way Quentin Tarantino detractors hate how dialogue-heavy his movies are, you may want to start fast-forwarding right about... Wait for it, wait for it, and now. Uh, because the appeal of Shaft is really kind of... It's kind of oddly complex. Uh, because uh, your take on it in terms of your enjoyment, your, your mileage... It's going to vary depending on how you're really watching it. Um, if you're watching it just kind of objectively, just strictly as uh, a piece in the detective noir genre, especially in that 70s style that Pat alluded to, uh, kind of like he said, kind of like the French Connection, it's. I, I'm sorry. I know Pat's going to probably viscerally disagree with me. It's very average. In that sense, if you just view it strictly strictly on those merits, there are probably at least a dozen, if not more, similarly styled detective thrillers and action thrillers from that decade that probably deserve to be ranked way above it. Other hand, if you're viewing it with a sense of appreciation for what can be sometimes a, a kind of camp factor to black exploitation that can be kind of easy nowadays to maybe snicker at and, and just kind of find a little find a little bit of chuckling amusement at even then well even then you're probably still going to be disappointed and actually if that's your tack if that's your approach to it I would personally recommend watching the 2000 John Singleton remake with Samuel L. Jackson, which I'm going to bring up a couple times as a comparison as to why the character works, so to speak, in these three movies, but it kind of took a, 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 different, a different approach in the... It almost, it's almost a shame to call it to call it a remake. It was basically a half-assed fourth sequel was what it was. Um, but why Samuel L. Jackson at the same time was both the best and worst possible choice for that role. And last but not least, from, from kind of a third angle, a, a third kind of filter to put it through, if you're looking at it strictly through the filter of, as Pat said, the rise of strong, realistic, kind of raw, streetwise male leads, in uh, black leads in movies, uh, then, yeah, it, it is essential viewing. Um, it, it is, uh, you absolutely have to see it at least once if you want to have a fully well-rounded take on black cinema at that time. And a big part of that comes back to, yes, it was following up on Melvin Peoples and Sweet Sweet Max Badass Song, uh, to which you could possibly maybe argue that uh, Melvin Van Peebles kind of did it first and did it extremely well. But 
that Shaft did it most memorably, as far as a lot of people are concerned, did it best. Uh, because it didn't have necessarily, like I said, that, that sort of that sort of cheesy kind of campish factor that something like the Dolomite movies do, looking back on them nowadays, kind of with how far film has advanced since then. Um, both uh, both black cinema and you know movie making it movie making and fiction overall, but uh, it a lot of the appeal comes back to Richard Roundtree and how groundbreaking he was because Pat mentioned Sidney Poitier and that's that's a pretty good juxtaposition as far as opposite ends of the spectrum because he was a black lead. And a very strong one, a very compelling, a very compelling one, a, a very thrilling and um, immersive one to watch. However, it's easy to see watching something like um, In the Heat of the Night, for example, how a lot of black audiences at that time would view him as being grating for maybe being too white and not really being down to earth and connecting with them on the level that Fred Williamson and Rich and Richard Roundtree and Rudy Ray Moore did. Um, because Roundtree embodies everything that I love about action heroes up to that point. And, and this is something that I've said many times over, so if you don't want to hear me repeat it, or if you're rolling your eyes right, rolling your eyes right now, uh, please, you know, spare me the fuckery of your annoyance and fast forward a little bit. So I'm going to say it again because it's still true. Uh, for any given role, it comes down to believability. Whether you are able to transform yourself into that, into that character and really embody that, char- that character to a drastic degree and go to great lengths to really capture that character, or if you just happen to naturally carry that kind of presence such that it's the role you were born to play, so to speak, you have to be believable. There is no substitute for that in anything outside of science fiction and horror cinema where you can really bend the rules of reality. It's why I've always said I love to watch Charles Bronson because he's convincing in that, yeah, you genuinely 100% believe that he could mop the floor with damn near anybody he's on the screen with. I could say the same thing about, as far as that era was concerned, um, Sean Connery, Lee Marvin, Steve McQueen, Bruce Lee, uh, uh, Fred Williamson, another great, great example being that that guy was a big fucking ex-NFL star uh, who really set the bar at that time for athletes transitioning into cinema that I'm not sure anybody short of maybe The Rock has quite met since then. Uh, Okay, speaking of, Jim Brown uh, made a very similar similar transition. Uh, You didn't need a whole lot of work. You didn't need a whole lot of padding and smoke and mirrors and elaborate measures to make them believable like you do nowadays when you see somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio cast in a movie like, say, uh, Blood Diamond 
where he's supposed to be running around uh, hold, holding semi-automatics in, pe- in people's faces, whereas in reality, anybody that hardened that a really white little fucker like him were to walk up to with a gun would probably take it and stick it up his ass. Um, you don't need something like a whole lot of really intricate and spectacular wire work like what you have in uh, in uh, The Matrix where you can pass off someone who looks and carries themselves like Keanu Reeves or Carrie Ann Moss being able to absolutely destroy a whole room full of SWAT team members. Uh, you really need the, the whole the whole cipher whole sci-fi virtual reality conceit and all the philosophical mumbo-jumbo, you kind of wrap your head around that. I'll even say, even though I know I'm going to sound like a hypocrite in a few weeks when we talk about it, I would even go so far as to throw Matt Bourne in the first three Bourne movies in there because that's not somebody that when you just look at him, when you hear him speak, when you really take in his mannerisms, you think this is a guy who could absolutely bring buildings down or, down around him. You know, that's why he needed the really extensive time, extensive combat training and everything. The only guys you have nowadays that really live up to that, in my opinion, are if you were to really narrow it down to those action heroes without really sitting and thinking about it for a while, you don't get much further than Daniel Craig, Jason Statham, Hugh Jackman, and The Rock. That's about it. That's about all you come up with. But as far as this movie goes, Roundtree really does something special in that he pulls off something that the guys like McQueen and Bronson back then were able to do in that not only were they physically imposing, not only did they have the physical presence to really carry off those roles of being streetwise, raw bone toughs, but he also had the charisma. He was also enough of an actor to really carry it off and really actually create a character and not just somebody who somebody who was a bad mother. Uh, that's I mean that's what it comes what it comes down to. And to me, it is the thing that made this movie so enjoyable to me the first time around and carried it from being what script-wise and supporting cast-wise, would otherwise be a very average detective thriller to being an above-average one that maybe I don't hold up as a quintessential ageless classic like a, like some people do, but that uh, certainly if I were to see it on uh, see it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, or Hulu Plus tonight, Perler, <laughs> very good, <laughs> uh, Hulu Plus tonight, um, yeah, by all means, I'd crack open a brew, order a pizza, and sit down and watch it. The hell yeah. Sequels, not so much. But, yeah, and you ain't there. Um, well, certainly, Sean said a lot there, Pat. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to piggyback on, um, which uh, now would be the time. If not, then uh, go ahead and jump right into I'm going to give you the dubious honor tonight of doing my job, which is we're going to trade roles here. I'm going to let you do the plot synopsis for these movies, uh, and I'm just going to react to some of the things that 
that I enjoyed about them. Kind of like you know what I do with the Wednesday reviews with with Winfrey. I let him do the plot synopsis, and I just sort of react. Uh, that's how we're going to tackle this. So first, if there's anything you wanted to add to what sh- or piggyback on what Sean said, otherwise, give me that plot. No, I, I think Sean made a, made a very clear point about uh, kind of encompassing how a lot of people feel differently about the movie and where they hold it to what standard and what enjoyment level. And I, and I think for the most part, he's right. It all, a lot of it is just perspective based on where you look at it. Um, but to get into the, the actual first Shaft film, basically what you have here is a story of this private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks, as the song will tell you, uh, John Shaft who is based in Manhattan, in the, Harlem, in the Harlem area of Manhattan. And he gets involved in basically a mob war between two factions, uh, one being held by the very aptly played Bumpy Jonas <laughs> uh, by Moses Gunn, who is sort of your movie's comic relief to a certain point. And what you find out is that another mobster looking to move in on Bumpy's territory named Ben Buford has kidnapped Bumpy's daughter. Now, all, while all this is going on, you have the meddling of the NYPD, the actual law enforcement body in the area, trying to crack down on gang wars and turf wars and successfully do things on their own, and which includes some corrupt officials in their own, you know, in their own units. And Shaft has one guy he can trust in that department, Lieutenant Andrazi. And what you see is basically Shaft thrown into the middle of essentially three warring factions between Jonas's cartel, Buford's cartel, and the NYPD. And somehow Shaft has to basically be responsible for the rescuing of Jonas's kidnapped daughter, for which he's got a 48-hour leash by the NYPD to get done, or else they're coming in and intervening. And that'll mean negative consequences for Shaft and his private eye business as well. And it leads to kind of an uh, epic Mexican-style standoff at certain points through the movie, culminating in a real fun final five minutes um, where we see the conclusion and really establish kind of a, the, the anti-hero hero in Shaft. And at the end of the day, he does save the girl. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, no, we, we always spoil the movie here on uh, Long Road Terminator. But if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this podcast, go watch the movie and come back. Um, all right, let me, let, let's get into this. Uh, let's dig right in. One of the things I love about this movie is how tightly focused on Richard Roundtree's shaft it is. On the one hand, you know, it's his story and him having to deal with all of these uh, variables. But it's also, and I don't want to say a love letter, um, it, it's more of a here is a snapshot of Manhattan in the early 70s. You know, coming out of the 60s, coming out of the Vietnam War, all the soldiers coming home, many of them becoming that city is homeless. This is something I dealt with personally, by the way. As a, as a social worker um, in New York, uh, it was a very real thing to have to deal with the consequences of the 60s and how it affected New York City, which also you know, led to, this goes back even further, um, you know, a lot of the white folks that were living in various parts of Manhattan moving out of the suburbs of Long Island. So 
in its wake, creating the kind of Manhattan that uh, Shaft is inhabiting in 1970, 1970, 1971. And as a film lover, I enjoy uh, that picture of New York in the early 70s. It had... And you have to understand what I mean by that. Because years later, when uh, people are predicting the age of the super criminal and the descent of New York into hell, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Disney would come along and change everything forever. (laughs) And now New York is a very different place. I think Pat can attest to that. So... There's this there's this window in time where New York was this very was the was the birthing ground of some of our great cultural icons like the Ramones and CBGBs and whatnot, um, and when you look at a movie like Chef, you you get you get a sense of what New York was like back then. And that's one of the things I really like about the movie is that it does take time to show you that part of New York. Um, I want to stop there. I know, Sean, you're, you know, I don't know how much uh, time you've ever spent in New York, if any at all, but did you get that sense to, you know, just sort of uh, watching the movie that you got a, you got a, Nice window into the grittiness of early seventies, you know, uh, late sixties New York. Did I lose everybody? <laughs> uh, live radio, everyone. Hang on. I'm gonna go ahead and play music while we figure this out. Uh, for those of you who had. For those of you who haven't had an opportunity to listen to it, here's some Megadeth from uh, two weeks ago. The threat is real. All right, Pat, can you hear me? Well, Pat, I'm trying to unmute you, but uh, my entire board has unfortunately... Yeah, I've lost everything. I've lost the board. <laughs> uh, Block Talk Radio, everyone. Prepare to hear when when we finally get Sean back. Prepare to hear Sean go absolutely ballistic. Uh, I'm glad you can hear me, Sean. Um, <laughs> Pat. 
And yes, occasionally blog talk sucks. We do a lot of shows here. Most of them don't turn out like this. A few of them do. This happens every once in a while. Okay, good. Sean can hear me too. Unfortunately, I can't hear either of them, nor do I have my studio at the moment. Uh, vamping, ladies and gentlemen. This is what I do best. So what's happening here, I am, so that you understand... I am, I'm unmuted. Ah, hey, I'm unmuted. You're unmuted. Fantastic. I, have How about I, you, Sean? I, oh, I, I hear you. Lord Jesus. I am the zombie Lord Jesus Christ. I will say it because I, I have my doubts that anybody can actually hear a damn thing I'm saying. Oh, the echoing is bad, though. I don't hear any echo. Jesus. Okay, good. (laughs) What I don't have right now is the studio working. So, um... So we have no idea idea if anybody can hear this or not. No, Winfrey... I just got a message from Winfrey saying he can hear. Oh, this is really funny. So I got my studio back, and you're both in the queue twice. God damn it. <laughs> All right. So I was talking about how let's just move on. The visual aesthetics talk- of New York. Yeah, the visual aesthetics of New York. And I threw it to you and you were gone. So Pat, let's pick up where I threw it to you. Uh let's let's pick up the ball and move this game move this game on. Let's talk about how at at, at the very least, Shaft is a window into the C D uh, era of New York, late 60s, early 70s, which I really like. What were your thoughts? Yeah, this is a realistic look at what the city was turning into when it really hit its, its absolute low point in the mid to late 70s. And it was just a crime haven. Police were constantly outnumbered by street criminals. We had to have groups like the Guardian Angels eventually emerge and it really was at its lowest point. And you see that very viscerally depicted in this movie. Later on in Death Wish, which hopefully we get to do a show on at some point. And eventually it became a hit for other films to do that. But this was really the first to take New York. And beyond being just a big city that can be scary, it's showing you the underbelly of how people were operating in the streets. Very realistically... Uh, it's showing you that there are police officers at that time who were taking bribes and working in conjunction with street crime. And it could be a rough, scary place, and it would only get worse as the decade went on. Um, I don't know if you heard me in all the nonsense that went on a few minutes ago, but I said that... Uh, you know, this was the era of the of the super criminal. Um, that the, they were predicting the era of the super criminal, and New York really, at the you know during the seventies and into the eighties, was starting to go off a cliff. And it wasn't until Rudy Giuliani and Disney came along that things got so, that things got, in theory, better. Um, it was sort of a Faustian bargain. New York traded away a lot of its grit and a lot of its character so that people could walk through Times Square safely and not be mugged. And and you see the transformation that started, and well, that was necessitated there by these elements that you see in the film Shaft. There was a point in time where, and you and I have talked about this in the past, if you walked into Times Square, it was the pornography capital of the world where everything was a neon sign with three X's on it 
or you had people handing out free flyers to get into strip clubs or, or peep shows. And now it's a haven for corporate legs of businesses. And there, you know, you have all these tourists who are in there taking pictures of pizzerias and candy stores and the, the main billboards that are set up there. This ain't that New York. This is New York as it was. And despite its bad times, it's so fondly remembered by the people who were there and lived through it uh, up through the 90s, like myself and you. And uh, just, just again, it wasn't cool to depict things as they really were at that street level, but Shaft does that. And the novelization did it well. And because the writer was so involved in the screenplay, he wanted that transferred. And Gordon Parks, who became a very influential director, was absolutely on point with how he shot it. So one of the things that, that's great about it is that long introduction. Um, the, the very first shot you see, it's not a single shot. It's, it's, it's edited. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's still a long shot of Shaft just walking the streets of New York. And I can think of no better way to introduce this movie. Because New York itself, in its gritty, seedy underbelly, definitely plays a role in the narrative. Um, so that's one of the things I love about it. The second thing I, I, is, you know, we're, we're also talking about when we're only a few years removed from the civil rights era. And you have this very tenuous relationship between black Richard Roundtree, Shaft, and, and the white cops. And I remember thinking throughout the movie that, you know, it's, and I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on this, guys. You know, you have the character of, uh, I think Andrazi is his name. Yeah, Lieutenant Andrazi, who they only show him one way. They show him sort of pleading with Shaft and trying to be decent. And you get this, and like, if you understand sort of the plight of the black man, you understand why Shaft treats him the way that he does. But in, the, in terms of the narrative, he's just mean <laughs> to Andrazi for no reason. Like, I can see why he reacts the way that he does to the lawyer at the, at, at the start of the movie. And I think you'd have to be somewhat tone deaf to not, to not understand why black folks might have just a smidgen of a, of a, uh, you know, of an issue when dealing with white folks in power. But, you know, a movie is still a movie and you still have to show things and they never really show, uh, Andrazi giving Shaft a, a hard time that he deserves to be treated the way that he does in the movie. So I'm curious what, what your thoughts about the, that character and the interplay between Shaft and sort of the underpinnings of race involved. I'll let uh, Pat go first and then Sean. Well, I mean, there's kind of 300 years of narrative to precede that if you don't understand it. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know how much more clear on that you can be. But, you know, I always, I always think of Marvin Hagler, the boxer. I did, I did say you'd have to be tone deaf. And I, do, I get where you're coming from. I, I did say that. But I still think yeah. that I still think that in a movie you still have to I feel like you still have to show a little bit more of the relationship um, if, you, if you're going to do it that way. Because otherwise it's just, you know, if you put that out in your mind, you're just, and you're sort of going Cabo La Rosa and you're watching this movie with no preconceived notions of race relations at all, ever. You just wonder what okay, that is mean. I, I get that. What I liken it to is the story that's always told about Marvin Hagler, the, the famous boxer, when he first stepped into a boxing gym in Massachusetts owned by the very Italian Petronelli brothers. 
uh, Marvin walked in after he had been working, you know, laboring as a construction worker, you know, as a teenager just to try to make some money. And he went in and he, he said, the Petronelli's voice said, Marvin didn't want to talk to us. Marvin didn't want to do anything because we were Whitey and you couldn't trust Whitey because Whitey was bad. And that's really the essential narrative here is that no matter how nice Whitey may be, Whitey's Whitey. And Whitey put right. you and your ancestors on a boat in chains and enslaved you for 300 years. And I don't care how, you know, you, the majority of, of black people in the nation at this time, the way they'd been treated by the majority of whites that they'd been involved with with the majority of their lives is overwhelmingly negative. It's, you know, if you constantly eat Italian food and you don't like it time after time, you won't go to an Italian restaurant at a certain point because you've had so many negative experiences with it. It's the same principle here in play where you can imagine, and it's not hard to, that Chappas had many negative dealings with the white establishment that, you know, was the controlling interest in the country and oppressed him and oppressed, you know, a lot of people over a long period of time. So, I, again, you said you have to be tone deaf with it, but you still feel there should have been more of a narrative. I I think they lost something along the way because I think one of the strengths of, of this movie is how well they develop the central character. And I'll get into, you know, in the second film about where that goes or doesn't go for that matter. But I think they did such a good job of really turning this character and making him layered and understood by the viewer in an effort that hadn't really been made before with a central black character that they would have lost something doing that and trying to make him very anti-white. And you also risk losing the white audience who this appealed to. Well, that's the thing. Like he's very charming and he's very funny about it. Um, you know, the scenes where he interacts with white people, he's not the one with any power. You know, he's being questioned, he's being accused, that sort of thing. Um, and the only power that he does have is that Andrazi is sort of begging him to share information uh, which he sort of loathed to do. Well, all I was saying was that I, that if you come into it cold, you, it's fun to watch him mess with the cops, but but without any without any other um, background, that's all it comes off as. It, it's like I think if you're a black person, you watch that and you're like, yeah, give it to him, give give it to him, Shaft, stick it to the band, and and that's all there is. I just wanted more of a relation to see more of that relationship fleshed out. Sean, um, your thoughts about the interaction between Shaft uh, and Andrazi? Well, you know what? If there's one caveat about the varying enjoyability factor uh, of this movie that I kind of neglected, and maybe I, I did kind of intentionally pass it up, it's this. It's the fact that it comes back to a principle that I was really first made aware of when I heard Chris Rock kind of elucidate this in uh, in one of his better stand-up routines a number of years ago. Um, be pedantic, if you will, and correct me on this. I I think it was either bring the pain or bigger or bigger and blacker. Uh, possibly, maybe it was never scared. I think it was one of those three, but I think it was possibly the first two. Anyway, um, minutia aside, uh, the point that he was making was he was talking about white people and hip hop. He and it came down to you can listen, but don't complain. It's not <laughs> for you. Well. Uh, to a certain extent, 
that's what's very true about this movie, is the fact that as you watch it, it's not so much that the racial underpinnings that are a very firm, stable, well-built, but not overplayed foundation of the movie um, are something that really strike a very particular chord that you just can't find in everyone. Uh, It's one of several very personal, heartfelt tones of the movie. The other being that nostalgic, gritty, unabashed vision of New York that, well, for example, you and Pat are obviously going to be more familiar with than I am because you're native New Yorkers. Me, I'm a white guy who grew up in a combination of Midwestern suburbs and one rural Midwestern town in South Dakota. It isn't a movie that really speaks to me necessarily on that level. Um, Until I moved to Jefferson City, Missouri, my junior year of high school, I think I had known a grand total of about six black people my entire life, and that's maybe being a little bit generous with the count. Uh, If you tallied up everything from elementary school through junior high and my first two years of high school, uh, I would be surprised if I could come up with any more than that. Uh, So that isn't something that I necessarily connect with on that real deep, relatable level. But I could see how, if you divided it between the two, to black people, yeah, Shaft was a hero. So much so that they kind of parodied it, parodied it in talking about it on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, famously. Uh, because uh, back when Will Smith didn't take himself so fucking seriously, uh, he was able to joke in several episodes that he thought Shaft was a real person. Um, I miss that. I miss that, Will. I really do. And... And I miss him instead of the guy with the terrible Nigerian accent who I'm convinced is going to fuck up Deadshot. But another story for another time. Um, Welcome to Earth. (laughs) We were just talking about it. Anyway, (laughs) um, whereas I could see how if you were a white person watching the movie, you know, if anything, Shaft was almost kind of an anti-hero because he didn't trust the police. He did things his, he did things his way. Um, he wasn't exactly, you know, a, a, a black Superman in terms of being an utter boy scout all the time. Um, he sometimes had to do what some people might see as some, as some bad things that were above the law, but he did them for the right reasons to bad people. Uh, but there's still a a very earnest quality to it Uh, that's grounded in something that was very real then and that I think kind of resonates today because it's becoming even more real with every passing incident that comes under a media media microscope. Uh, And by the way, as as a quick aside, uh, Pat, much as we may disagree about the state of modern boxing, I love the Marvin Hagler appreciation. 
I really do. Good on you for that, buddy. Um, but it comes down to kind of what, kind of where you're coming into the movie from. And the most interesting thing to me, I think, is that in this movie, you have a story in which what comes down mostly to just a war between two gangs is, you know, played up by white people in power as being white versus black. Whereas by the time you get to the fourth movie in the series, where it's, um, hang on, let me, let me look at my notes here to make sure I, to make sure I don't misquote this. Um, where you've got uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing the ah yeah the the nephew of John Shaft, and that is a big overblown racial racial story when he's taking on Christian Bale. Race is absolutely a factor in it. Um, so it goes from a, a story of distortion, kind of fanning the flames. To where no no in this case it's exactly what it looks like. We're uh, no subtext, no depth, just is what it is. Um, and I think it's kind of telling that while I hesitate to call the two thousand the the fourth sequel in two thousand bad, I would say Gordon Parks kind of exercising a little more subtlety definitely works better because I I feel like it's the 2000 movie was one of the rare instances of John Singleton just missing the point in fucking tirely of what made, of what made the first one. So the first one, so beloved And we can get into that another, another time where we have time this time, but for right now, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, I I hope I didn't kind of miss the point of what you asked me too much. Yeah, you're fine. But you're fine. Yeah, I I hope I, I kind of uh, get to it kind of generally. I want to turn things around now and talk about the other side of the coin where Shaft has to deal with the uh, the underbelly of New York in dealing with Bumpy. And I thought their first meeting was a very interesting scene. It's a very fun scene, mostly because you have the henchman going when the man comes to meet you, you best be here. You know, they're, they're, you know, you're obviously rooting for Shaft. He's the hero in this thing. But you have a character that sees nothing but Bumpy. You know, Bumpy is God. And I loved how he sort of, sort of spoke with him with that reverent tone. You know, when the man comes to meet you, you, be, you, be, you best be home. Um, so, but he throws him out of the room, and Bumpy, who is your you know, stereotypical, prototypical gangster, uh, you know, someone who controls their territory by being feared. And when you first meet him, very quickly uh, you're shown a, a very high level of um, uh, vulnerability. That's the word I was looking for. He's very vulnerable in that first meeting with Shaft. First of all, Shaq gets away with highway murder in that scene. You know, you're in my chair. That you know, it's just talking to him so disrespectfully. You know, and that's the whole thing is that when you is that they don't tolerate no mess because if they do, then the control of their empire just sort of goes to pieces. 
which is you know, you talk bad about the about the mob boss, get you know, you get your head cut off. But Shaft is able to get away with this great level of disrespect, and you find out why because Bumpy's between a rock and a hard place. He you know he wants his daughter found, and he has nowhere else to go but to Shaft. So there's a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of shit he's willing to take just to get what he needs. And I like that scene. I like how uh, how that was shot, and I like the performances between the two actors. Quick responses, guys. What did you think of your first meeting between Shaft and Bumpet? Go ahead, Pat. You know what? They really they really clear up the Bumpy character to me with one particular line between the two of them, where Shaft just goes at one point, and I, I'm trying to get it exact. I think what it was said was, "I thought the money didn't matter to you. Just getting your baby back." And when you kind of you're kind of feeling for Bumpy because his daughter has been kidnapped, Bumpy comes back with the line, "Money always matters." <laughs> and at that point, you're like, "Chef, do what you got to do." <laughs> yeah, as I said, he's a vulnerable character. I don't think there's much debate about that. But when he says a line like, "You know, the money always matters," a little bit of that sympathy goes away, just a little bit. Uh, Sean, Bumpy and uh, Shaft, your thoughts, real quick. I don't really have a whole lot, a whole lot to offer. I mean, Bumpy Jonas is a great villain for just for just that reason. Um, it's what I would liken it to is it's a little bit, in a very very vague sense, kind of like watching uh, the Kingpin in or Wilson Fisk in uh, Marvel's Daredevil. Um, as played by Vincent D'Onofrio, in that, yeah, there are glimmers where you kind of feel for him just a little bit, even though he's clearly not a good person. But then he turns around and just goes full dickwad, and <laughs> uh, that 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 the uh, sympathies out out the window, you know, <clears throat> like, like like kind of like what you said, you know, Matt, do what you got to do. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't call him one call him one dimensional, but very well played in terms of at least not being over the top and mustache twirly. <laughs> no, he's definitely not mustache twirly. Um, no, they they've toned him down from what you would see in like a movie like The Mac later on. Yeah. <laughs> um. What did you think of the... Now, this is a detective story. This is something I've, I've complained about with, with some of the Batman movies, is that you have a character that, that they rely too much on action, and I think that's because when you're in looking for a mass appeal audience, you don't want to spend too much time holding the camera still, letting the characters act. I mean, that would, letting the actors act, that would be terrible. Um, you you'd much rather see people punching stuff. So you have the world's greatest detective... Uh, unable to do much detective work, you know, a scene or two, uh, you know, uh, 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 I, you know, a scene or two of them going, huzzah, I found it. But for the most part, they're just punching stuff. And maybe uh, I, I need, to, need to watch the movie again. That was kind of the feeling I got with this. Here you have somebody who, you know, they're in a neo-noir, you know, film noir type of movie, and he, I don't know if he's doing a whole lot of detective work. As the narrative unfolds, I feel, you know, it's, I don't want to say one action sequence after another, 
Um, this is a movie shot in the 70s, you know, where, where things actually could, you know, could take time. And uh, it wasn't sort of the Michael Bay every five minutes something blowing up. But I don't know. Maybe I, and I'm, okay, I'm willing to be wrong about this, but I just I didn't feel like he spent a lot of time. Um, there was a lot of time dedicated to the detective story as such. It was. Um, I know there's a, there's, a, there's an early shootout and there's you know conversations here and there, but uh, it, it all sort of builds to the big rescue. What was your thought of they thoughts about that? They do little things here and there to kind of show you his ingenuity. It's not overstated because again, at the you again, like we talked about the climate this movie's being made in, your quote unquote detective stories are movies like Bullet and The French Connection where the action beats on the screenplay are like every three to four pages, which is an insane number of action scenes. Um, and, and again, you kind of get a more style over substance at that point. This tries to pull it back, and it does use those action scenes that you talked about, but they're much toned down from that, and you almost want to say much more realistic than, you know, obviously the chase scenes in those movies are, um, which are the highlights of both films, really whereas Shaft is much more gritty, street-level, one-on-one violence, and the majority of it till the end. But also they do, like I said, they have these little things that show the ingenuity of the character. Like uh, when he manages to find the phone number to contact Bumpy, and Bumpy says, wrong number, and uh, Bumpy's like, how the hell did you get this number? And Shaft goes, off a bathroom wall in the damn subway. (laughs) And the fact that he's able to accomplish little things like that give you the idea and kind of put the narrative to that. Okay. This is like, maybe he's not your Sam Spade type of guy, but this is again, a gritty street level guy who has those ingenuities and street smarts that he can find these things and put pieces together that way. And it kind of, you kind of, do you, do you fill in blanks that aren't necessarily there with your own imagination at that point? Yeah, you do. But I think that it works in this film because most people watching this film in places like, no offense to Sean, but places like Midwestern South Dakota and, you know, places of that nature are not going to be able to relate to the things Shaft would do to get those things anyway. And it's just one of those things where it's kind of let your imagination carry the narrative. Or if you're from this area, you can understand how this thing happens. No, I'm going to turn it all up. I'm going to go ahead and... Um, I'm going to bring up one last point here that I really that I really like and is worth talking about, and I'm going to open the floor to you guys, and then we'll move on to the sequels. I think um, the end sequence is uh, it's properly built up to I, it, it's the most action packed of the entire movie. It really goes into fast forward at this point. Uh, it was a lot of fun, you know. It's it's him working with I think some of the Black Panthers to uh, to mount this rescue of the daughter from the from the Italian mob. And uh, you know he he swings into he swings into the, I think the hotel room like Tarzan you know grabs her throws a thing uh, gets her out of there again um, you know there's some there's shootouts everyone runs they jump into the cabs he gets to the phone and the movie's over it's fun I it is a uh, a little out out of the it was it was an interesting choice I thought. For somebody who's supposed to be a believable street-level private eye, and he's doing, you know, <laughs> ostensibly Luke Skywalker, <laughs> you know, flying across the Death Star by uh, by grappling hook. Um, so just, you know, a comment or two about that, and then uh, anything that you want to discuss with regards to this movie, Pat. Uh, 
I, I mean, you know, we, we talked about the, the realistic action versus the, the car chase scenes in Bullet and the French Connection. And, and again, this the, the final showdown, I guess you'd call it, when he has Ben's men all dressed up as the hotel staff to execute his rescue plan. <laughs> and the you know throwing the explosive through the window and swinging in like Tarzan and all this stuff it was it's necessary to get the broader audience appeal because you're having to compete with uh, the budgets of Steve McQueen driving this awesome looking car all around the streets of San Francisco and Popeye Doyle chasing this train you're not going to compete with that on a half a million dollar budget through everything it's not going to work so you have to find a way to put this stuff into order. And, I mean, there have been crazier things to happen in New York hotel rooms in the ghetto than <laughs> a guy swinging in on a rope. I've seen a couple of them. I've been to prom weekend, okay? But, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's just out there enough where you're not going to dismiss it and it's just fun enough where it wants you to keep hooked, and you're going to remember how that went, and you're going to say, damn, that was fun, and you leave on a mm-hmm. high note. And that's yep. not even the final part of it. The The best part is the chef walks to the phone booth because he's going to let Vic know, hey, I got it done. And you're like, this guy just takes care of everything. And, of course, because <laughs> of the success of this, it would lead to a sequel or two. But we'll get there in a minute. But I, I just think it's enough fun. And we talk about action beats in a script where, to get to the more technical side of our discussions, uh, a gen- generally in a script, you want an action beat, particularly in a, a detective or action movie, every 10 pages. And if you don't have it in 10 pages, you've got to make that 11th and 12th page really stand out. And I think that's what you saw with this narrative. Incidentally, I think this is what people's big problem with Spectre was. Long, long beat, uh, long gaps in between the action, and I think people thinking the action wasn't as. Are we still on, or did we lose the board again? Are we still? Oh. Son of a... And we lost Mark, unfortunately. Fucking son of a bitch. Pat, can you hear me? I can hear you, Sean. God damn. You know and what? we're back. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck it, blog talk, you don't care, fine, we'll talk about the movies, whatever. I'm going to do it while I play Injustice. Are you okay, Sean? God damn it. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we because keep doing it when at least two of our other shows have shown there's a better way? God um, damn live shows. I know, I know. Um, well, well, what's 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 more, I can't believe this is the same platform where you have guys like Jim Brewer and the SB Nation crew and the entire Motley Motley Fool network of podcasts. They're all hosting, and this is the kind of bush league shit that happens. Did they yeah, have to come up with this too? Um, so Pat, are you there? I am here. Excellent. 
So we're having fun with Blog Talk Radio tonight. It's one of those oh. just just one of those buggy nights, you know. Uh, well, I don't Live, know motherfuckers. I don't know if it's Blog Talk or it's Skype, but I know I uh, I keep being hung up on, and um, you know it's been buggy. But that's okay. We're not going to let that. We're not going to let that ruin what's been a fun conversation so far. Um, I was going to say, let's move into the. Uh, Sean, I know you're you, you've just had it up to here, but if I could if I could bring you back, if I could gently stroke you and bring you back and tell you it's going to be all right. Any last words about the original shaft? About the only thing I have to add at this juncture is that Blog Talk has given us the shaft. Stop it. <laughs> we're we're going to be positive. We're going to be positive and be professional and pull through. Fine, I'll be, fine, I'll be as positive as I can while talking about Shaft while playing Injustice. What the fuck ever. Anyway, um, no, the point that I was going to throw out there is that, and it once more comes back to both my appreciation for Gordon Parks and Richard Roundtree versus where I feel like John Singleton and Samuel L. Jackson really did the franchise a disservice with the 2000 sequel, which, spoilers, we're not talking about tonight. For a reason, I'm not grousing about that. Uh, we wanted to focus on the main three, which is cool. But since for some people that may very well be the only one of these movies they've seen, since it's the most recent one, um, Parks and Roundtree brought a sense of subtlety to the commentary. They did it without being over the top. They did it without Roundtree feeling like he had to, tr- like he had to treat the scenery like he was a fucking Jew at a Chinese buffet on Christmas. Um, he was able to kind of play it earnestly. They will play it down to, down to earth. It's the same way, I forget the name of the actor we talked about who played Bumpy Jonas. Played Moses his character. Uh, thank you. Uh, it was played straight. It was played believably. Um, none of these guys... We're a we're you know going full Pacino on us here. Whereas on the other hand, Samuel L. Jackson, for as much as I love him, I think was more of an earnest and sincere black exploitation throwback in Pulp Fiction as Jules Winfield than he was playing. I don't know. I guess we're just going to throw out there John Shaft the second. I guess, in the 2000 movie. Because in that, you know, that was uh, that was Samuel L. Jackson at that point in full-on self-parody Samuel L. Jackson, which, you know, for, for the sake of, of some perspective on it, keep in mind, uh, it wouldn't be all that long after that that we'd get snakes on a plane. Uh, just to give you some idea there. But in that one, everything from his his delivery, his actual lines, his character, it was that was black exploitation parody. And I don't know if maybe that was necessarily what Singleton 
was going for would be kind of a surprise since he is normally such a serious, often socially minded filmmaker. Or if it's what Jackson was going was going for, I find it hard to believe that somebody who's as well read and such a student of black cinema and black and black culture as Jackson would necessarily think that would be a good idea and doing a service to kind of the legacy of the original character. But, you know, once you've seen the first one, you can't go back and watch the two set and watch Shaft 2000, which, God, that sounds like the name of a sci-fi movie. Um, or a porno. Without, without, without feeling maybe, number one, a little bit awkward, and number two, like, about the only damn connection between that and the classic that birthed it was the fact that they unearthed, you know, the superb Isaac Hayes theme. Um, which is the other part of the original movie that's become so parodied over the years. Um, and, you know, everything from The Simpsons to Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mitchell, go watch it. One of my favorite episodes. Um, but, you know, it's it's a shame because it feels like if Singleton and Jackson were going to go and redo that, that was a missed opportunity. That was a badly, badly missed opportunity to kind of really honor what Parks was going for with Shaft, not just cinematically, not just in terms of subtlety and in terms of um, uh, painting the realest portrait of New York possible, but in terms of capturing a snapshot of black America at the time. And instead, it just turned into a kind of fun action movie that's enjoyable enough to watch, but you know if you're if you dig black exploitation cinema for its its cultural relevance and its point in America at that time, you're just maybe gonna feel a little bit uh, iffy. So anyway, <laughs> onward to Shaft Big Cock or whatever the name of the second movie was fucking called. Oh, you're you're getting all grousy. Relax, man. It's cool. It's cool. It's all good here. We managed it's to go not- five minutes. A, we managed to go five minutes without a single uh, technical issue. That's good on, on a night like tonight. Hey, I did a podcast with Gavin earlier in the week that they may have had. We may have. Uh, we went like two hours. We may have had to throw the whole thing out because there were sound problems. So uh, hey, at least we can hear one another um, when we're all on the same time. Moving on. <laughs> uh, let me. Uh, we'll transition this way. Some of my su- summary thoughts on Shaft and how it differs from its sequels. The thing I like most about Shaft is, is really what I've said before: is that it's it's this window into New York City, following this one character dealing with the dynamics of the, uh, of what goes on in his life at that time, the race issues, the crime issues, etc. It's a small, tight script about a single issue with all of these different layers and it looks great. It was shot really well. It had character. It it had characters, but the movie itself had character. It had grit. Um, It was really special. It stands out among its peers. Here's my problem with the next two movies we're going to talk about, and I'm going to let Pat uh, tell you all about them. First, with Shaft's big score, 
we went from this – this suffered from uh, what we talk about a lot on this show, which is the problems with sequels is, well, if they like the first one, surely we have to go bigger with the second one. Because, and I can defend that point of view by saying, you don't want to do the same thing again. Why, why make the same movie twice? We've, people have done that before, and, and it's been widely criticized. Uh, so you go big. So you get more of a budget. You go bigger. You go badder. Unfortunately, a lot of times when you do that, you lose your sense of self. You lose the film's identity. And I feel like that's the biggest criticism I have of Shaft's big score. While it maintains some of the identity uh, carried over from the first film, I feel like because it's a much bigger action film, uh, it's also it falls into that replaceable parts category where uh, I don't, Shaft doesn't quite mean as much and you could have replaced him with any action star of the time and it would have been the same movie, I feel. So with that sort of an introduction, I'm going to let Pat go ahead and tell you what Shaft's big score was all about and then we'll talk about whether or not whether he agrees with me that Shaft's big score kind of sort of misses the point. Yeah, basically, Shaft's big score is... I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. It it just turns into a generic action movie where it starts off with, basically, these two owners of a funeral parlor and insurance agency, one partner who's accumulated massive gambling debts to the mob decides that in order to pay him off, he's got to kill his partner and steal his share of the money, and then he'll be in the clear. The problems arise when, A, the partner is, of course, a personal friend of John Shaft. The money that he was going to steal is missing, so he makes a deal with the mobster he owes that he's going to cut him into his business, but he also makes the same deal with the fortunately returning Bumpy Jones. And at that point, we once again get into this web that we had in the first movie of mob faction versus mob faction with corrupt person involved and Shaft in the middle. However, where we had the development of this awesome lead character Shaft and the real grim, gritty world of New York at the time and the streets, we don't get none of that in this. And I'll let Mark take over the reins at that point. Yeah, basically, um, you have a movie that sort of culminates in a helicopter slash boat chase scene, a uh, huge firefight. Uh, ultimately, this, if I remember correctly, um, there's another damsel in distress in this one. There's a, there's a sister of, of the dead partner. Um, and oh, yeah, who's Shaft's all, mistress. Yeah, and they're all sort of fighting over. It's a race to get this money that they're all fighting over. Um I don't really know, know in terms of explaining the plot. I don't know how much more to add to this. Um, I was actually really bored by this movie. I wasn't bored as much by Shaft in Africa, what of it I saw. But uh, this one, what what I saw was like, eh. And I think that's the thing. Is like I was hoping for more Shaft, and what I got was a generic 70s action film. Char, do you want to step in here and add some thoughts? This was a movie. Things happened. I've never been so bored by so much shit blowing up. 
there's just nothing to it, which is amazing considering that you've got basically the same core of what made the first movie so good. Um, you got Richard Roundtree, you got Moses Gunn, you got Gordon Parks, who this time out is not only, is not only directing it, but he also scored it. You had Ernest Tideman, the the creator of the character of the character writing the script. It seems like this should be a good vehicle for development, and yet what you get is proof that the best sequels come from movies that are originally envisioned to have sequels. Um, Where you have somebody who has sat down and maybe had an idea for a story and already had the back of their mind, okay, looking ahead, this turned out to be a hit, I know where I want to go with the sequel. The whole idea that George Lucas theoretically had a pretty good idea of where he was headed with The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. It was envisioned as a tri- as a trilogy. Sometimes you can kind of make it up as you go along and it works. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. This is one time where really the the Maybe the worst thing I can say about the movie is it's not even memorable for being bad. It's it's the worst kind of bad. It's boring and and forgettable to where I'm pretty sure that eight weeks after this podcast, at most, I'm probably not going to be able to sit down and tell you what the hell this movie was about. Um you know, Shaft in Africa at least kind of takes the social commentary to a to a comically ridiculous level, but <laughs> but some goddamn way you gave this movie nearly a two million dollar budget after the first one saved NGM from bankruptcy because it unexpectedly did so well um, that it managed to do ten million at the box office, probably just based on name recognition. But does it hold up real well? Oh no! Oh, oh God, no! Hell no! I, um, Sean, I compared this earlier to Death Wish Two in that the comparison to me is that you have, for the most part, a recycled plot in that instead of yep. a girl, you've got uh, missing money this time with warring mob or crime factions, I should say shaft in the middle of all of it and they layer it now with instead of character development like you had in the first one what they do are much more over the top big budgeted action sequences and I'll say this the the end of the film is memorable when you have a boat helicopter chase from the Long Island Sound all the way into the Brooklyn waterfront but Aside from that, I think you're on the money by saying there's really nothing worthwhile or memorable about the film. And I'm glad you brought up Gordon Parks being in charge of scoring this movie, because I think the one thing we didn't touch on that maybe we should have is the incredible Isaac Hayes score for the original movie that, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody recognizes the theme to Shaft. And so credit to that as well for making it and giving it that feel. But in this one, you had a very unmemorable. There's nothing memorable about this music. 
There's nothing really memorable about the film other than to me the final chase sequence, which is cool. It's a cool visual. But just like Death Wish 2, they recycle plot elements from what was originally a very groundbreaking and important film, water them down, and instead of investing in the characters, and which you'll become invested in, they just throw in bogus action sequences along the way and water everything down about it that matters. And it can be enjoyable to a point, but for what you're looking for out of it, no matter how you saw the first one, for what you're looking for on this one, you don't get on any level. And Mark, maybe now, you disagree, I, but I don't think so. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that Carl Weathers action movie. Action Jack. That's the one. You remember, like, in the midst of Carl Weathers being a sidekick to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, he went on this rant, this very public rant, about how why can't he, in this country, be an action star? And he was doing it to promote Action Jackson. He was out there going, you know, like, why can't I be out there and, uh, you know, be the big action star and everything? And, and you know, and be just be right up there with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, <clears throat> and he put this movie out, and everyone was like, "Yeah, that's not what we want from you." <laughs> action, action, bombed in a big way, and the the sort of message back to Carl Weathers is, you know, this is kind of like Ray Wyatt to Roman Reigns, anyone but you. And that's what this reminds me of. It, it reminds me of, you know, an early '70s Action Jackson. It's just like, okay. This, not really what we want. Not really what we want out of this character. Not really what we want out of these kinds of movies. But you know, eh, whatever. Yeah, it just doesn't have any sense of importance or relevance. It doesn't develop the character of Shaft further in any way that you would find interesting and want to see more of him the way the first one did. It doesn't have that memorable score. All it really has is that action sequence at the end, the chase, which we were talking about in the beginning, about how films like Bullet and The French Connection make these chase scenes, and it feels like it was trying to jump on that trend by and do it by capitalizing on the popularity and unexpected success of this movie that Sean pointed out, where this was only the original Shaft was only one of three profitable MGM films released in 1971, which is astounding when you look at that studio's history, but that's the way it was. And this is just an exploitative, not black black exploitation. This is just an exploitative feature based around lengthy a lengthy action sequence at the end, and cheap throwaway gags and fight scenes throughout, with a recycled plot. I want to read this review and get your reaction to it, because um, I think this <clears throat> I think this sums it up pretty well. And I, and if there's nothing left to be said, I don't want to belabor the point. We can just move on to Shaft in Africa. Shaft seems out of his element here with little or no action and large expanses of utterly forgettable and unnecessary plot elements for him to navigate. Even the helicopter fight sequence near the end is utterly boring for some reason. Roundtree can't conjure up the iconic Shaft persona for this sequel, and without a strong protagonist, the film falls flat. You know what? I stand corrected. There is one more thing I'm going to remember this movie for. It's the movie that inspired the incredibly... Awesome throwback stylized title card for this week. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben Cologne. You want more knock it straight the fuck out of the park. Good on you, buddy. Uh, Pat, your thoughts on that uh, summer, summation review of this uh, movie? 
Uh, mainly fair. I think there's a little more action to it than what they're saying, but it was meaningless action, so I understand the point, and I don't, I don't disagree with the overall. All right. Um, so that closes that up. I, I tell you, I, th- this is one of those shows where, you know, um, I definitely wanted to talk about these movies, but if we end early, I won't be surprised. So we are, we don't have 40 minutes left, so who knows? You know, 40 minutes, that could just be plugs for a Rattlers and Broadcasting show. Uh, so let's move on to Chef in Africa. Chef goes to Africa. He's going to save the women, Pat. This is much like Mad Max Fury Road, you know what I'm saying? So tell me all about it. You know, one of the things about Shaft is that Shaft was considered in many ways a street-level James Bond. They decided that instead of being a street-level James Bond, he should just be a black James Bond. (laughs) And what that leads to is Shaft venturing into Africa to break up a slave trading ring. And... The sad part is it's not as far-fetched as I'm making it sound. Um, Basically what happens is the film opens and there's a diversion of kids stealing Shaft's hubcaps off his his fancy car. And then here's where we take a turn and somehow I'm going to have to defend this as not being as ridiculous as it sounds. He gets kidnapped from his office by two African men and he wakes up naked in a horse stable. While still naked, <laughs> while still naked, he gets put into a stick fight with one of the kidnappers, and then gets put into a, an impromptu endurance test in an overheated chamber, and he beats it out by covering himself in dirt to show his ingenuity because he's shafted. And you find out what this is is all a, a setup for a job offer, and. Basically, what he's told is that young Ethiopians are going into Paris for work, but the men who are facilitating this entry into France are selling them to an evil white slaver named Vincente Amafi. And the reason that they're recruiting Chef to do it is because, according to Colonel Emil Ramila, Amafi knows all of the local operatives there. And Amir appeals to Shaft's sense of, you know, you're a brother, you know, these are your brothers who are being, and sisters who are being taken away. And, uh, you know, Shaft ain't having none of that, which at least retains some of the initial characterization of Shaft, which was good to see again. And uh, instead what happens is the guy makes him a big money offer, and then Shaft's on board. And basically what we have is Shaft operating with some James Bond-esque gimmickry, on a mission to stop the slave trade that's still going on that, you know, we're ignorant to. And polarity ensues. If you um, want to call it that, yeah. <laughs> so I give I give the movie credit for, for trying to be, uh, for, for trying something new, for trying to, for trying some ingenuity. Still doesn't. I still think it sort of misses the point. But at least, at, at, at least the the people who put this together were willing to take a chance and put Shaft in uh, a new situation, a, a situation that was unfamiliar to him, and we get to see the character uh, in a different light. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, New, new York he knows like the back of his hand, 
Um, and so, you know, r- rather than going over well, well-worn territory, they were willing to try something new. I give them credit for that. How successful that is, eh, it's okay. I mean, it was. I, I found myself at least wondering where this was going. And uh, I'll, I'll give away a secret now here. I got roughly to the part where him and the uh, villain's mistress, uh, right after right after he bed her, and they're Nate trying to get away. Yes, what a body! Um, In 2000, elected to the Serbian Parliament. Yeah, interesting. Um, in any case, so him and the, him and the girl uh, try to get away on this boat. They're attacked. She takes a knife in the chest, right in the breastbone, right in the chest, and that's about where Verizon said I had watched enough of the movie and it was time for me to go to bed. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. <laughs> we the the, uh, the emergency broadcast system butted in and said, "Hey, this is a test. This is only a test." And then I go to put the movie back on again, and Verizon said, "No." <laughs> We're gonna go ahead and do maintenance now on the on-demand system. You've watched enough of this movie. Go to bed. So, how does it end, Pat? How, how did how did he save the women? Well, basically, Shaft fights off what seems to be forty-eight thousand assassination attempts, <laughs> while while not only trying to save his his Ethiopians because he's going to get paid very well, but also because he's really attracted to the guy who hired him's daughter, Alimi. Um, And you might recognize her as Vonetta McGee because she's played also in Blackula and Melinda, uh, two other very, very famous blaxploitation movies. And he's got two roadblocks. One is that she's prohibited from, by tribal tradition, from engaging in sex until she reaches the, quote, second stage of womanhood, at which point she will undergo female circumcision. And she has a bodyguard with her at all times. That bodyguard is Frank McRae. And I think a lot of people will recognize him from a lot of Sylvester Stallone movies. He plays the foreman of the meatpacking plant where Rocky and Paulie work in Rocky II. He plays Eclipse in Stallone's movie Lockup. He plays uh, the, uh, the former champion wrestler in Stallone's Paradise Alley. Uh, and I'm a big fan of Frank McRae, so it's cool to see. But in a very unmemorable uh, formation, Chef saves the slave trade. Uh, Chef, excuse me, takes down the slave trade, uh, like you would expect him to, with lots of action and explosions and shooting people. The final body count for the movie doesn't wind up too high for a guy who's breaking up an entire slave trading ring. Um, it's and. It's really unsatisfying in a lot of ways, but it's more noteworthy for things it does accomplish. Like, for the longest time, any movie that took place in Africa filmed by a major studio was generally a white man in Africa in a fish-out-of-water story. Going even all the way back to the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies, Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen, there was never a black lead in a movie about Africa for the most part, and this at least takes that step and puts it in the right direction. Um, the director is also uh, John German, who is also credited for directing El Condor, which came out in 1969, and that featured Jim Brown as kind of the first, uh, you know, unrepentant, over-sexualized, violent African-American male in a movie. Um, and yet, despite this, and he did, the, and he would actually go on to do The Towering Inferno, where Richard Roundtree does have a significant role in the film. 
the script was made by Sterling Silfant, who had done In the Heat of the Night and The Poseidon Adventure. And the movie, it doesn't... It does, it, it's almost, in a vein, very similar to the second and third Death Wish installments, just like its predecessor in this series, where they turn up the action further while making significant improvements in what the overall scenario of the story is, but it still falls flat and doesn't wind up being any good. Yeah. Um, you know, much like, uh, much like what I said about that one GSP fight years ago and far away, they tried. <laughs> At least they tried, but it's not a very successful film. Um, Again, it was more of a instead of getting Shaft back to what made made him Shaft and what made people flock to the theaters and make that movie such such a success, they were trying to rebrand him as this action hero. And it, it's not that I, you know, obviously, I, you know, especially now, a black action hero can succeed, and maybe one could have succeeded back then too, um, if that's what they were going for, but. That, that's not this character. Um, they they took a, they took a private eye in the you know in New York City and tried to turn him into James Bond and it's just you know it's a it's a square peg in a round hole and I think that's really the sad sad story of the Shaft trilogy is that well some of it looks cool and the performances range from great to fine. Um, it lost its identity along the way to the point where it became kind of a mess. I, you can only thank God that a group like Canon hadn't come along to really take this series and just murder it further where you, you know, they did it with death wish and I, you know, you could have easily seen if like Golan and Globus had their hands on this, the next thing would have been, where have we not taken shaft yet? We have not taken shaft in space. <laughs> When you go into space, that is truly the harbinger of your end of ideas. I don't know. Friday the Thirteenth disagrees with you. Yeah, Jason went only went only went into space in the ninth movie. Yeah, that's true. But he but never went to Africa. Africa. Well, but, but no. And now we have an idea. Jason goes to Africa. But then again, I would also point out Hellraiser and Leprechaun. <laughs> Wait, they did a Hellraiser in space? Oh, they did Hellraiser in space. Oh, yes. Oh, did. for Pete's sake. I remember. I reviewed it. Mark pussied out and didn't. I was we on a high We saved that one for when he was on vacation. And this is why I don't watch movies anymore. <laughs> All right, I think we've uh, I think we've said all there is to say. Sean, do you want to shake it off, walk it walk on the field, and take one more stab at this? Any last last words and burning desires? Oh, you know what? If you're a big long time movie fan, the original Shaft is a good one to see, if only to kind of be able to say you've seen it, even if it's even if it's not exactly your Jimmy Jam, your cup of tea. Um, Again, I I can't stress this enough. Your your filter that you come into it with is going to determine your mileage. If 
if you come into it about the way about the way I did, again, Midwestern guy, only by the time he was halfway through high school, had only met about a half dozen black people in his entire life. Um, you know, you're you're not going to probably connect with it on quite the level that you know that anybody else who really sees it for his historical significance based on their background and what they grew up with is going to. And that's okay. There's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it it's one of those movies where I think that, um, I, again, you, you can watch it, you can enjoy it, but you don't really get to complain about it because if you don't, a certain profile, it very clearly wasn't made for you. Um, so you really have no you really have no room to grind. Um, really, that that's about it. You can skip the you can skip the two sequels entirely. Um, maybe give the 2000 movie a look if you want to uh, for some reason. Even well, can, though it even can we also mention the TV show that followed. Oh, oh, yes, yes, there was briefly, uh, thank you, there was briefly back in the early to mid-70s a, a Shaft TV show that starred Richard Roundtree. Uh, didn't last much more than a couple seasons. Uh, no, it, it, had, it had one season, and it was part of the rotating um, mystery night on CBS, and Richard Roundtree has readily, at every point when asked about it, just bashed it to all pieces. Because they completely like if you think the character was watered down in the two movies, imagine how much they would water him down for network television on I believe it was Friday night it aired, um, where now he was working in conjunction with the police department. He was no longer a private eye really. He was more of a a kind of an unofficial police officer, and was working cases with them. None of the the cool like street sex appeal, nothing about that involved in the character at all anymore. Um, Essentially, what what we talked about before, where they kind of whitewashed some of the characters that Sidney Poitier had played in his parts, uh, like Mr. Tibbs, they did to John Shaft in the TV series and took away all those gritty elements about him and just made him basically a black police officer uh, who was compliant with everything and worked with them. And the series didn't garner very good ratings because it was being rotated on Friday nights with one other series, which was basically a, a very white bread audience show. And you have two completely deferring audience bases that they were looking at to try to capture for Friday nights. But when you constantly make the show every other week, people aren't going to remember that. There, there is no DVR. There is no VCR at the time. They're going to get pissed off and turn off and not pay attention. And thankfully, the Shaft TV show had a very short lifespan because of that. Yeah, um, what, what that kind of reminds me of, uh, again, through kind of the vision of my own experience, is it reminds me of kind of what happened to the original The Flash on, curiously enough, CBS. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. During the Gulf a, War. Well, well yeah, you, you had a great, potentially groundbreaking show that got only one season, not for lack of quality, but for the fact that, number one, it had an astronomical budget, for a primetime action show of that time. Um, and number two, uh, it, was, it was hit with a double whammy of scheduling misfortune. Number one, um, so, 
some brilliant jag off, who I got to think was probably also responsible at some point for deciding to pit the Doctor Who TV movie against the Dan Has a Heart Attack episode of Roseanne, um, decided that The Flash was, was of a weight class that it could punch with the fucking Cosby show. Um, back when it, was, when, it, when it was approaching the tail end of the height of its power. Um, but then to make matters even worse, uh, you had this show that is very obviously today the godfather of Arrow, The Flash, and Legends of Tomorrow. Um, and it's constantly being preempted by a little something called the Gulf War. So it never really had a chance to find the audience that it really deserves, um, which is just unfortunate. But in, in this case, it's it's kind of different in that The Flash was a good show that was killed off due to terrible judgment and just plain bad luck. And then you have Shaft, which was mercifully drug out behind the woodshed and given two in its ten spot. Um, right. So... So yeah, I mean that's that's about it. That's that's Shaft for you. Go watch the original. Maybe go dig on the 2000 John Singleton movie if you want to take your chances. Um, but unless you want to really see Samuel L. Jackson at his Samuel L. Jackson uh even that's pretty skippable. I think that brings us to the end of our show. Our uh, you know, much like the people who brought you the last two Shaft movies, we tried <laughs> with all with uh, Block Talk Radio not necessarily working with us. By go, by Gadfrey, we tried, and I thought we had a fine discussion. What if it could be heard? Don't you think that? I think we took source material that was very promising, delivered well at the start. Ultimately, we're given a steaming pile to deal with, and made the best of what we could. So we're very much in the same position that MGM was. Exactly, well, exactly. We we made a fine sausage out, out, out of lips and lips, lips and assholes. Um, speaking of lips and assholes, plugs. Uh, Pat, I said uh, we can find you at Casual Heroes. Why don't you tell them what you do there and what you're all about? You have two shows, two shows that you work on. I do. You can more often than not hear me on the WrestleCast when we actually decide to record. <laughs> a certain nights uh we haven't for a little while at least i haven't so be be on the lookout for me to return to that show and it's illustrious glory soon uh you can also hear me on the championship rounds with my co-host gavin napier uh we do have an episode ready to come out soon we're going to be talking all about the canelo con mismatch why gennady golovkin can seemingly get nobody to fight him other than unheard of men uh we don't know what it is but we do and we're also going to talk um, about the heavyweight title picture a little bit and where things lead to with Tyson Fury. Uh, you can also hear me on... Yes? Woo! Heavyweight! Ah, okay. The, the classic Mark Radlich heavyweight cheer. Uh, you can also hear me on the edition of tonight's episode of Bunkhouse Stampede Radio featuring Gavin Napier where I talk about the dangerous Dan Spivey and how... Uh, I fondly remember him as well as Gavin does, and I will also be on next week's show for his wrestler spotlight, talking a little bit about the late, great Ray Fernandez, or as we know him, Hercules Hernandez. Yes, hopefully you guys are not uh, plagued with the problems we had on tonight's show. 
Um, Sean, I'll go ahead and plug all of our Long Road to Ruin stuff. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the people when your uh, your Power of Free show is coming up and uh, when when people will be able to hear that. Okay. Well, a couple other things. First of all, um, thank you again to Benjamin J. Cologne for the outstanding title card this week. Uh, he always comes up with some immensely imaginative ideas for every franchise, and there's just no understating um, how much work he really puts into each and every card. Uh, I sometimes wish that uh, that we could give him more more of a spotlight than we do. Um, but if you really like that, follow him on Twitter at SoulXO, S-O-U-L-E-X-O. Uh, visit him at www.soulxo.com. Uh, to check out Soul Exodus, the comic book, his baby that he has created. Um, you can also hit him hit him up via his Twitter in terms of some outstanding commissions that he does, um, especially his customized comic book covers. They are really sights to behold. If you've ever wanted to see yourself and your nearest, dearest, your favorite partners in crime immortalized on the cover of your favorite, of your favorite DC, Marvel, Image, or Dark Horse book, Ben is the guy who can make that happen for you. Um, by all means, contact him today. The commissions are worth absolutely every penny. Uh, meanwhile, little uh, little announcement. Um, I am getting back into the pop culture blogging ring. Um, I, starting Monday, will be doing news and opinion writing for Blasting News. Um, it is an outlet that is based out of the UK, uh, has made a lot of traction in Europe as far as news, opi- opinion, and entertainment content, and they're making inroads to the US. Uh, their founder, their chief, their head honcho, Ed Burley, uh, contacted me the other day, said that he had looked up some of my work on Upwork and wanted to know if I would be interested in coming on board. I said, yes, absolutely, 100% thank you. Um, so I'll have more news about that in the immediate future as I kind of get settled in there. But as Mark mentioned, the big news is uh, we are less than a month away from the start of my first full-time hosted podcast. Um, it is a show called The Power of Three that I have conceived with myself and my two longtime best friends in the world, Ann Alberti and Jeremy Holsoff. Um, I It's kind of my mission to produce one of the most positive shows in all of the interwebs in terms of just the life and all of the joys of being a nerd in this big, crazy world. Uh, we'll talk about reviews, news, We'll just have some fun kind of pseudo-philosophical discussions occasionally. Uh, We'll have the odd guest on every now and then. And I've even got a few fun little recurring segments planned. Uh, It is not going to be a live show because while I initially (laughs) planned on it, um, between a combination of my just really running out of patience with just how unreliable Blog Talk Radio is and uh, some scheduling issues with the other RIB shows. Uh, We're just going to be recording a three-way Skype call each week, 
and then I will edit it together with some theme music, maybe a couple ads, maybe a couple quick plugs here and there, and we will then air it whenever we can find a window. Basically, we're doing the same thing that... Uh, It'll be Tuesdays. You guys will be yeah. Tuesdays at 9 o'clock for the foreseeable future. Right. Um, but basically, we're going to be doing the same thing that Source Material has been doing successfully for a long time, um, <clears throat> because I want this show to be the best that it can possibly be. And I can't do that when I never know when overruns are going to be cut off, when I can't give certain topics the time that I feel like they deserve, as opposed to feeling like I need to cater my rants and our discussions into a specific time frame. Don't get me wrong, it's still going to be reasonably about uh, somewhere between two and three hours each, no different from Long Road to Ruin. Um, I'm not going to let it run too long, but I just I hate feeling uh, hamstrung by that and and feeling like when I'm really on a roll, all of a sudden my rhythm is thrown off and I'm frustrated by the fact that the tech that we're supposed to be depending on can't be counted on, and not even in terms of the overrun, <clears throat> But just during our pre-scheduled showtime, it can't be counted on to maintain the simple fucking task of just keeping us on the fucking air. Uh, It gets seriously old, um, especially when I'd love to really grow an audience and maybe possibly get in line to get uh, some some kind of bigger guest from the geek world on some sometime to have some nice conversations. Um, I've got a couple friends that have said, uh, with varying degrees of kind of internet fame and infamy, uh, that have said they would love to do the show, and a couple others that I haven't even asked yet. But, you know, how do I do that if I have to tell, if I have to tell them, well, I can't guarantee you that we're not going to get interrupted and all of a sudden have to completely redo our conversation because Blog Talk Radio just decided for us, nope, you're done. Derm, derm, derm. Anyway, um, so we're going to record it that way. I'm going to look into some alternate platforms for for the show that I can put it on in addition to Blog Talk Network. Um, it's obviously going to be available on iTunes, obviously going to be available on Stitcher. Um, now that my mental health is kind of stable again, I'm going to try to have another go at setting up a blog for the site as kind of a test for hopefully down the road uh, setting up a full-fledged Rodlich and Broadcasting Network site so that we can be easier to find for a lot of people, easier to find on to find on Google. But anyway exasperated as I am, that's pretty much what I've been up to lately. But otherwise, if you want to find me on Facebook to chat about this, that, and the other thing, whether it's movies, music, video games, wrestling, Arizona Coyotes hockey, um, hit me up on Facebook. Uh, You want to look... I have several accounts. Look for the one that is a picture drawn by Benjamin J. Cologne again. Solexo.com at Solexo on Twitter. Um, in uh, the Mark II Iron, in the Mark III Iron Man suit, uh, that's the one you want to look for. Any other ones? Uh, one bills is my personal account, to which I do not accept friend requests from people that I don't actually know. 
and the other is an inactive account that I'm just kind of letting run out the clock until it eventually just deletes on its own. Um, but if you want to contact me, if you want to message me, uh, please include the hashtag LRTR so that I know that you're a listener, you're a fan, and you're not some Nigerian prince who needs my credit card number. <laughs> um, we'll set Chef um, all. <laughs> so here's what we got going on uh, also on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network. Uh, one thing of note, uh, everything, um, Robert Winfrey show, uh, the, what do you call it? Um, Everyone loves a bad guy. Everybody loves a bad guy. Thank you. Everybody loves a bad guy is on hiatus. Um, I'm sure it'll come back when he's ready to do it again. In the meantime, uh, I went fishing and found John Brodigan. Yes, I pulled him from the briny deep. Uh, those of you who may remember the early goings, of the Rattle and Broadcasting Network when we were just a wee little political show that used to show up on Sunday mornings talking about uh, cancer-causing cake and cancer-curing eggs. Well, uh, Mr. Brodigan, the old freak boy, uh, my partner in crime from back in the day, uh, he's got himself a brand-new podcast. It's been going on for a little while now. Um, it's uh, still dealing in politics, still dealing with the GOP politics. He's been doing it with some people that he's met through his career as a political consultant for uh, the Republican Party. Everyday Joe, I believe it's called. And its premiere will be tomorrow night. Go ahead and look for that in the usual Everybody Loves a Bad Guy time slot. Um, when Robert Winfrey's ready to do his show again, it will reappear on Fridays. But until then, you're going to get a little bit of Rodigan. A little bit of Rodigan for you. Everyday Joe. So uh, check out the first show that will be airing on the Rattles and Broadcasting Network tomorrow night where they wrap up the New Hampshire primary, where Bernie Sanders was robbed, I tell you. He wins the election and loses the delegates. America. Meanwhile, back in the city, Robert Winfrey and I also reviewed Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Uh, fun was had by all. It was a fine, 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 fine movie. Check out our review, see what we thought about it overall. Um, we can also, we've also got, in the archives, got a review of Kung Fu Panda 3. You can go ahead and check that out. And next week, next Wednesday, 9 o'clock, Deadpool. You'll hear all about our thoughts about it. Uh, we'll see whether or not Robert Winfrey actually hated the movie, as he said he's going to, or if, uh, if the movie was able to change him. Change him. Change him. Change him. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, next Thursday at this time, maybe later, probably 10.30, well, the Metal Hammer of Doom will be back. We'll be looking at uh, the metal opera, folks. Ed Guy's uh, Aventasia Ghost Lights. Aventasia Ghost Lights, everybody. The new album by Aventasia. We'll be reviewing it uh, a week from then. Long Road to Rooms will be back. Um, hopefully we won't have any interruptions, and we can talk for two hours about the Beverly Hills Cop Trilogy closing out uh, Black History Month here on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network. Do you want to do the twist? Say what? Do you want it with a lime and twist? <laughs> the Thursday after that, Metal Hammer of Doom will be back. We'll be reviewing the new Anthrax album for All Kings. And just a quick thing going into the future here. Uh, I'll tell you about some shows that we'll be doing here on a long road to ruin. Because um, the, the, the calendar this year has been kind of wonky. Uh, trying to match up some of the shows that we're doing with some of the movies that are coming out. 
also trying to get the album reviews closer to when the albums are coming out, which is made for, uh, and then we've got a lot of stuff planned around Batman vs. Superman. So real quick, Madagascar will be doing on March 10th. The animated Dark Knight Returns will be doing on March 31st. So I mean, it's a little wonky. Uh, the Hunger Games Part 1 will be doing on April 21st. And then we'll be off for two weeks, and we'll be back for the Hunger Games on May 12th. We'll be doing the, <laughs> the original X-Men trilogy, even though now they've been summarily wiped off the map, on my birthday, June 2nd. Yes, I'm going to celebrate my birthday, my 40th birthday, everybody, by talking about one good X-Men movie, no, two good X-Men movies, and one shitty one. And then on June 9th, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trilogy. Ha, I made it funny. That's what Splinter says. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go over more of the schedule as we get closer to the summer. Uh, the last thing I want to advertise here before we close up shop, uh, those last two weeks of March are really busy. On March 23rd, we'll be reviewing the new, uh, Daredevil season two, the whole thing in its entirety. We're not doing multiple shows anymore. We're wiping these things out all in one shot. So uh, two hours on Daredevil Season 2 with myself and Robert Winfrey, anyone else that wants to join us for that. The day before Batman vs. Superman comes out, March 24th, will be mine and uh, Winfrey's special in defense of Man of Steel. Mm. The day after that, now hang on, Googly, keep it in your pants. The day after that will be Gavin and maybe Pat's uh, response as we do sort of a rap battle here uh, about Man of Steel, it'll be Gavin's case against Man of Steel. So you'll get to hear both sides of the argument. And then the following week, we'll review Batman vs. Superman, and then, as I said before, uh, Dark Knight Returns. Uh, and then I'm off to go see WrestleMania. And Mark, who's singing on the new Anthrax album? Is it Joey Belladonna? Um, maybe? Let's see. Anthrax. Uh, let's see, who's still in the band? I looked up anthrax, I came up with the disease. Damn it. Anthrax band. Here we go. Um, Band members. Scott Ian, Charlie Bennett, Frank Bello, Joey Belladonna. There you go. He's in the band. Aren't you happy? I'll have to give it a listen. Absolutely. All right. So with that said, I want to thank everyone for putting up with us tonight. <laughs> I want to thank we'll us for putting up with Blog Talk. Yeah. Yes. And we'll, uh, we'll see you folks very soon. I'm going to go ahead and play the outro music. Be well, be safe, and behave. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk.